All right, so what's the drink joke this week? Because I got nothing. Well, Brian sent me a message this week about non-alcoholic spirits. And I'm like, that feels like a good thing, but I'm managing to drink decaf coffee tonight. So give me a little pat on the back, please, listeners. I don't know what the like Foley sound for a pat on the back is. I thought you were about to pat yourself on the back. And I'm like, that is, you don't need the pat on the back. I need the pat on the back. Welcome back, affixes, aficionados. Fixes. Fixes, the fixes. Love you. So, welcome to Affix, the podcast discussing the various writings of the internet intelligentsia and modern discourse on business, economics, philosophy. We cover it all, as well as, you know, a healthy dose of Australian betting and... Straussian Diablo 2 news. <laughs> Straussian Diablo 2 news. You got to really read into it. Get across all the details, folks. Believe me, one of our patrons has. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal, phenomenal. So the way we like to run things here is we run over the previous episodes with a bit of follow-up and our thoughts on the past, potentially run into any feedback from the listeners, and uh, then we kick into the main topics. So, feedback. I promised last week, I guaranteed myself that there would be feedback on who was it who calculated the power of the nuclear bomb by dropping a piece of paper and just seeing how far it was moved back by the shockwave. And that was Fermi. He didn't make a nuclear bomb under a piece of paper. No, no, no. Like they were standing like several miles away observing the Trinity bomb site. And he just had a piece of paper and dropped it as like the shockwave was coming and saw how far it got moved back. Okay, that's way cooler. Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah, so that was Enrico Fermi, in fact. That was the original Fermi calculation. That's pretty genius. I actually thought that there was two things that I understood when you told me that anecdote. I'm like, he dropped it on top of a nuclear bomb. I'm like, how did the paper survive? I feel like it would have been incinerated. Or like somehow he was so smart that he dropped a piece of paper and he's like, based on the atoms in that paper, if I were to split all of them, it would have gone this far, but it only went that far with non-split atoms. Therefore, I can calculate the explosion of a bomb. Your way makes more sense and that actually sounds plausible. I mean, still pretty darn cool. Fermi, he's all over it. He's very clever. All of them were very clever. I wonder whether we have people that clever anymore. I'm pretty confident there's people that clever. They're just... Other than you. Other than you. Because <laughs> you don't seem that interested in science. I am not that clever. Let me just put it that way. Cool. Other follow-ups. Somehow I forgot to mention last week that one of our listeners, their dad was really, really senior at the Reserve Bank of Australia, as well as like in just state bank stuff, treasury. So we really need to reach out to them at some point and get some insights into what the heck happened in the 70s. Sure. Maybe he's already listening. Maybe he can reach out to us. Maybe. Maybe. That'd be pretty nice. And then a few weeks back, I think it was the fire episode. We discussed Lynn Alden, who's a financial writer, does a, a newsletter for investors and all that kind of things. And I thought, you know, by bringing her to the table for this podcast, we were finally getting out of that Tyler Cowen rationalist circle and bringing in some new insights. Ooh. But no, (laughs) apparently, like, maybe maybe we were first. I don't know. I hope we were first. I'd like to think we were first. But yeah, Lynn Alden seems to be referencing a bunch of stuff that is entirely within these circles. And she was recently linked on the Slate Star Codex Reddit. So yeah, we just have very centric interests around Tyler. Does it worry you at all? Like, apparently, the whole of the GMU economics department is, like, basically a Koch brothers think tank and that they have, like, hiring and firing decisions and they're trying to spread their word about how evil and right-wing they are and everyone should hate them. Well, maybe they've got their message mixed up. That's actually not what Tyler talks about very much. Does it worry you at all? Does it feel like maybe they were, like, super-duper-duper effective? I read that argument and I could see it and I could worry about it, but at the same time, we're a bunch of Aussie guys and we're very biased towards not that view so hopefully we temper it somewhat just from our background at the same time like someone else posited the argument that it's kind of a moneyball thing like the right-wing economists just don't get positions anywhere else so it's just the best bang for buck is you're gonna get the really really smart guys who just happen to be right-wing yeah for real cheap at gmu right because there's there's a lot of them right there's a lot of libertarians there there's a lot of right-wingers there's which you sort of maybe expect from economists to be somewhat pro-market, but uh, less and less these days. Yeah, you expect them to be very pro-market. I guess like Chicago school is famously that. <laughs> I mean, Yeah, yes, that's true. Milton Freeman was the origin of that. It definitely feels like that's been wound back 
in recent decades, but you know, it's definitely still got that reputation in the circles. Anyway, follow-up question. Does it worry you that the Koch brothers haven't offered us huge piles of money? And, you know, maybe they're listening. Yeah, it does. Come on, guys. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Which is your favorite Koch brother? Which one do you reckon is listening? Uh, diet? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Brian's sponsored by Diet Coke from now on. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Sorry, I did have one more thing just to round out my feedback since I'm not going to get to talk about this in the Diablo 2 segment. A long time back, I don't even remember what episode it was in, we mildly insulted John Green for being a freak for having his cereal with water. Yes, because I of, have no regrets. <laughs> me either. But watching some Twitch streams this week, I also found out that Ryu Kezakotl does the same thing. Oh my God. I don't understand it. It just sounds so revolting. I can't even bring myself to try it. No, just... Give me dry cereal over yeah, cereal I with dry water. Yeah, cereal much more, much more easily than I feel I could eat cereal with water. Definitely. Oh my gosh. So just making my opinion clearly known out there. Cereal either completely by itself, no milk or water or anything else diluting it, or just cereal with milk. All right, that's it. Mm. That's I mean, options. everyone's interested in like, where do Brian and Chris actually disagree? This ain't it, guys. This is not <laughs> it. <laughs> so there we go. Line in the sand. Line in the sand. All right, it's been a feedback light episode for me, but I suppose a little bit more on minimum wage. There was a discussion around minimum wage or maybe wages in general about the inherent power imbalance that there usually is in these relationships. In an employee-employer relationship, the employer usually holds the upper hand in terms of power. And that could be because, you know, without a job, the person starves or can't pay their mortgage or whatever. Or just generally, it's like my employer is 100% of my employer's. But me as an employee is maybe 20% of their employees, fewer, yep. like for the direct line manager. And like generally speaking, far, far fewer for a specific company. You know, you would be 0.0001% of your company's employees. I would be a lofty 0.5% maybe of my company. But <laughs> yep. still, them getting rid of me is a much lower impact on them than it is on me. So there is a power imbalance in wages. But I actually, I don't know, you have to hope that the free market works, I guess, and that there's other employers willing to pay you more money. But it also does get into... I think I made this point to you years ago in that if I'm willing to work $5 an hour and you can make $20 profit on me, like I do think that inherently this power imbalance pushes my wage down to $5 an hour rather than the $20 profit and that labor unions can help shift some of that profit back to labor. But that can be somewhere where a minimum wage can help in that you're actually still both happy with a $10 minimum wage, but due to the power imbalance left to the free market, et cetera, the wage would be $5. And that's where a minimum wage could help in the distribution of the wealth creation without actually reducing it, perhaps, overall. Yeah, yeah. Um, And in the actual economic studies of it all, that kind of balancing of the demand supply equation, like they get $20 value out of your $5, theoretically, there should be some point in the middle where you meet. But if there is insufficient offers for you, if there's like a monopsony in the market where there is only one buyer for all these different servers of employee services, yep. then yeah, that can kind of shift it that way. And that's why you kind of really want there to be a lot of other people out there willing to hire you or for you to have options so you can go out into the market. And that is your way of doing it. But similarly, yes, unions are a way of fighting monopsony with monopoly, basically. Yeah. You, yeah. Then you can get a considerable number of the portion quitting. And like if you fire your whole staff, then the business does probably worse even than the individuals who have all been fired because the yeah. business probably evaporates and the other people just get new jobs after some lean times. Yeah. And also just all these conversations depend on who you think are the most common people to be hiring. What is your mental image of someone hiring an employee? Because so many small businesses hire employees and guess what? They are up to their eyeballs in debt and barely make a profit. Like you're coming out of this situation better than the employer in a lot of startups. Often the case. Yeah, yeah. In terms of uh, cash flow in the current year, you'd hope they're creating wealth. But I mean, just speaking of minimum wage jobs, maybe the restaurant business is the the perfect example. And maybe everyone in the restaurant business is willing to work for half and then we could all get cheaper food. And, you know, what the minimum wage is doing is pushing the price up of the delivery that I ordered for dinner last night to a point where the people could survive. And I would happily have paid less and, you know, left to the free market. All of the businesses would have competed them each other down to zero so I could get even cheaper food than I already get. But, like, I'm pretty willing to pay the price for the food already. So, yeah, maybe we just hold that equilibrium. I don't know. You know my thoughts on the restaurant market that most of it, 90% of the restaurant market is run by idiots who don't actually know how to make a profit <laughs> and we're all just exploiting them. But, you know. 
That's why I eat out so much. <laughs> Exploit economic inefficiencies and not my own laziness. Yeah, so it is unfortunate that employees who aren't willing to take the uh, entrepreneurial risk are also getting screwed in that situation where they're just getting hired by idiots. <laughs> I don't know if there's a nice oh, way to put really it. Think. <laughs> I hope none of our listeners own restaurants. Oh, I've, I had a mentor who, who ran right. a chain of restaurants and he was a pretty smart guy. So I know that there are some smart people out there, but he would be pretty open that you have to be super smart and very efficient in running a restaurant operation to actually make money out of it and make a good profit because there's so many people who aren't smart and just throw money at the wall and you're competing with people who are literally sending themselves broke. Sure, you're competing with people who are selling at a loss, which is a difficult competition to win. Yep. <laughs> it's the same criticism that everyone makes against Amazon or whoever. They're like, oh, Amazon, they're just selling at a loss to get a monopoly in the market. Well, <laughs> a lot of restaurateurs yeah. are doing the same thing just unintentionally. Yeah, they're not really getting a monopoly in the market, I don't think. <laughs> no. Maybe they get it for just a short period of time until they Yeah, get... when they're the hot restaurant and they're still making no money, even though they've got thousands of customers queuing up and then they go bankrupt. Yep. Funny business. Even I remember um, my sister went to a wedding at the best restaurant in the world as judge. I don't know who it was judged by, maybe Michelin or whoever. But, you know, three months after that wedding, they were bankrupt. The yeah. best restaurant in the world. Bankrupt. Madness. Although maybe it's, it's like a technical like Phoenix bankruptcy or whatever, right? Yeah, maybe it's just a debt consolidation or whatever. I'm not sure. It's in... I feel like it's in some Scandinavian country or something. Or Greece, maybe? Yeah, no, they had, um, what was it, Noma, I think it was, or something like that, up in, uh, I think it was Norway or Sweden, that one of those. That could be right, yeah, that could be right. Probably Denmark, now that I've said those two. Uh, Denmark, always being so Danish. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, interesting. The restaurant business was weird. And yeah, I wonder if it's just a passion thing that people get really passionate and super into their food and don't care that they're running at a loss or really just want to do it for the art, They're you know, a form of artist, perhaps. Yeah. A lot of people just get into working in restaurants because it's a low barrier to entry. And some of those people, you know, they're just coming out of high school. This is my knowledge of former friends I've had who were chefs, that kind of thing. Yep. And they were just doing it because it was a relatively easy job to get. It was kind of fun, except extremely intense. And they were the kind of people who, spending some time in that industry, you there's a pretty big filter on it. So you're very motivated. You might be kind of creative in that stream. And that's kind of a breeding ground for entrepreneurs. But it's also a really terrible breeding ground for people to run a business because it's like read a bit of uh, what was it, Kitchen Confidential and that kind of thing. A lot of drug use, a lot of. Uh... Yeah, yeah. And famously, at least in the US, I don't know whether this is the case in Australia, but it's famously where one of the few industries that doesn't discriminate against ex convicts. Everyone who oh, has right. a criminal record in the US finds it difficult to get a job because that's generally public knowledge. So, and a lot of people have a bias against hiring ex convicts, which is sort of fair enough, but it does put you in a really, really difficult position once you are an ex convict. And the restaurant industry, particularly back of house, doesn't seem to have that bias. So, there's a lot of ex cons there trying to make their lives, you know, trying to live within the law again. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Well, this was a fun diversion. I did not yeah, come into a, this. Yeah, what a tangent. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't expect this to go so far, but uh, thank you for the prompt, listener. And I guess on to the real topics. So this one's been kicking around for a while and talked to a great listener in Canberra about a month ago, this person who works in the power industry and it's something that had somehow worked its way into my Google news feed a couple of years ago about solar power. And in the last few years, it has been getting such a massive booster behind it that prices of electricity at like peak solar generation time have been going negative throughout the grid. Yeah. In Australia specifically. In but Australia. Yeah. So huge, huge inflow into the system of energy and that kind of thing. And that kind of just made me want to talk more generally about, you know, renewables, the renewable economy, batteries, how Chris feels about subsidizing solar installations on houses, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I have opinions. Not all of them well thought out. Maybe not any of them well thought out, but I have opinions. Yeah, and, and like also an article that you linked on Solar versus nuclear. It's really just a euphoric about solar and how cheap it is. Like the installation cost of solar has dropped so much in the past, really. Yeah, really only the past few years, right? Yeah, definitely. So I remember as being a guy who is pretty into the renewable economy, which is how this whole negative prices thing got into my Google newsfeed. Would have been 2009, 2010. This was when a lot of subsidies like... People started railing against them and being like, oh, what are you doing? This is just a waste of money. I think it was around the same time that Solyndra went broke in the States. Yeah. Yep. And all that kind of stuff. And the argument from the, you got to subsidize it, let's get it out there thing was, let's get the economies of scale 
we're just starting to learn how to make these things. Maybe we'll get some breakthroughs and we'll be way more efficient. Like the solar panels will no longer be, I don't know, 20% efficient at converting sunlight into electricity. They'll go up to 40 or something like that. And that was all the like research and stuff that I'd been seeing. We haven't really done that. We've just made them way more efficient to actually just print and make solar yeah, panels. insanely like, cheap to make. Insanely cheap to make. Cost is what, a tenth of what it was 10 years ago or something like that? Yeah, like, for the panels. Like I think when you put solar panels on your roof in Australia, most of what you're paying for is the labour to do it. Totally. And even there, they're doing some tricks to make them sort of just click together like Lego to try to reduce that cost even more. So like economies of scale behind solar panels is just one of the great arguments against the great stagnation that we've mentioned many times in the podcast to date. So I thought that is also worth calling to the listeners' attentions. And yeah, this article, Long Live the Sun, The Case for Solar Power by Claire Belinsky, is kind of looking at, if you extrapolate these trends out, where does that end up? Like, I hear a lot in these circles, whether I hear it from Malcolm Turnbull, whether I hear it from big energy investors in the States on Macro Voices, the macroeconomics podcast that I listen to about like, what are the other options? You know, should we be exploring drilling down into earth because everyone knows how to drill already and just getting uh, essentially moholes like electricity generation from geothermal, just from drilling down? Should we be exploring nuclear power more? Should we be exploring hydro better? That kind of stuff. And essentially what this article lays out is the length of a generation of technology in solar panels just cycles through so quickly and the learning curve allows you to get way, way more efficient than any of these massive infrastructure projects, right? Yeah, that's an interesting point about solar and like the minimum viable unit of a solar panel is like 300 watts, whereas the minimum viable unit of a nuclear power plant is probably 300 gigawatts. Yeah, so like you might spend... 10, 15 years building a nuclear power plant or 10 years building a dam or something like that. Yep. And that's just like one time you get to learn it. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's one generation of learning. Post-implementation reviews where everyone's sticking around on their phone because they don't really care. And <laughs> Whereas solar panels, you, it's very similar to the chip industry. Like they're made of silicon predominantly. Silicon's magic, isn't it? Yeah, silicon's <laughs> really magic now that you bring that up. Yeah, what a phenomenal material. So yes, every generation just gets, yeah, particularly, well, I don't know. I'm interested because the generation isn't really in the solar panel, right? It's in the solar panel factory. And I wonder why they are able to get so much more efficient so quickly. Like, you know, if you build a a food manufacturing factory, you're only iterating on that every couple of decades, I would say. And you make them more efficient at the time, but you don't make them 20 times more efficient. So why are the solar panel factories getting 20 times more efficient so quickly? That is a very interesting insight. Maybe it is the overlap with silicon, right? We're just... Yeah. Like a lot of this stuff came from China and like there was just huge investment from the Chinese government in terms of setting up capability and dominating this market effectively when the likes of Solyndra fell over and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a very interesting insight. Maybe it was just like because they were setting up so many different factories across the different tech hubs or whatever that they were setting up. They often put them all close to each other in China. Yeah. They'll just like say, designate this is the solar panel factory place. All of you people, what are you <laughs> living in houses in my solar panel? Didn't you just hear I zoned at solar panel? We're going to destroy your houses is what we're going to do. Get out. We're going to destroy your houses. What are you doing making non-solar panels here? Like it can even be industries that are still valuable otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, as you can clearly see, this area zoned for solar panels. Please get out. Yeah, maybe it's like huge economy of scale there. Maybe it was just a way of like laddering up to being able to work with silicon and like a sneaky way of being able to ladder oh, yeah. into chip silicon technology. China I don't know. certainly has its eyes on having a domestic chip manufacturing. I mean, they manufacture some silicon chips, but they're nowhere near on the level of Intel or TSMC. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like that was a point that was ill-addressed because it doesn't make sense that solar panels are made very quickly and cheaply, but solar panel factories definitely aren't. And battery factories definitely aren't either. Like battery factories are insanely expensive from everything I've read so far. Totally. Like on the level of silicon fabs. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how much customization you can do once you've got a setup yeah, in a factory. I mean, I, I actually don't even know how solar panels are made. I guess they're floated somehow, like glass floats. That's mm-hmm. sort of my guess as to how you would do it, but I have no idea. Mm-hmm. It feels like feedback for next episode. Is it ablation? Is it deposits? I don't know. Yeah. Is it grown? Is it crystalline structure that's grown? Could be. Mm. Anyway, the net point is there seems to be a much faster generation time which allows for better learning curves better mechanisms Something's happened there's been some breakthrough oh but, you know, there's just been continuous breakthrough for now for 20 years and now it's insanely cheap yep and it seems to be the trend is it's going to continue getting cheaper perhaps not moore's law cheaper but cheaper at the very least and just pushing more and more for solar panels seems to be 
almost a default outcome at this point when it's just the cheapest form of new electricity to bring to the grid. Yeah. So, I mean, you asked my thoughts on like my theory on government subsidies. And I do, I have this point that I sometimes make. I hate government subsidies for toys for rich people. And it does seem like rich leftists who want to show how virtuous they are really want solar panels on their roofs so they can show off their neighbors. And I'm like, part of me doesn't like that because it doesn't feel like a good use of government spending. But on the basis of like, hey, we can get a bunch of rich people's money at low rates because they want to show off to their mates how cool and solar they are. If we give them just a little bit of money, they'll spend a whole bunch of their own money on this and then we can kickstart a whole industry. Seems like a smashing success. Yeah, I think your point on that was a really fascinating one because we were originally talking about this in terms of how to address negative electricity prices and how to deal with grid fluctuations as a whole. And we'll get to that later in this conversation. But just the general baseline point of like, helping rich people pay for toys was a really interesting one to me. I think I first brought it up in the terms of subsidies for electric cars because, yeah. you know, a Tesla is a $100,000 sports car and there's some complaint that Australia is not offering subsidies to them. I'm like, I'm just not sure that tax dollars for $100,000 sports cars is where I want my tax dollars spent. Yeah. And electric cars, I'll mostly agree with you because the multiplier effect, I don't think, is sufficient. I'm actually, I'm actually doubting myself uh, after this discussion. Maybe that's what you need. Like if I, as a rich person, am willing to spend $100,000 on an electric car and you know Tesla needs to charge $120,000 for their profit and the government spends $20,000, then the government's just got a 6x multiplier on their investment into the electric car industry. Yeah. I just don't know if it's electric cars that you want or if it's just pure storage, right? So I would be more yeah. on the side of yeah, sure, subsidize the power wall or whatever. I think you need both ultimately for yeah. a, a sort of a carbon-free economy. Yeah, I think we need to get to electric cars at some point, but generally like the near-term problems that we started this whole discussion with is there's, the electricity grid was not built for small-scale generation all over the grid. It was built for massive generation at Generation and one direction and consumption at, yeah, at houses. Anyway, you were telling me that I was smart and made a good point and I, I cut you <laughs> off and now I really regret it. No, I just thought it was a really interesting insight in terms of like the multiplier effect, right? So the government, instead of going out and building a solar panel plant and like having to get land and having to get sign-offs and going through 50 million like environmental studies and indigenous surveys yeah. about... And presumably having to do it, that. like presumably attacking it with the mindset of this has to be a power plant. So it has to make at least 50 megawatts or it's not really a power plant. Exactly. Right? So Whereas if they can pay you know, help install it in the first place and just chip towards it 25%, 50% of the install cost, then you've effectively got private citizens coming in and paying their own taxes to build the rest of this power plant. Yeah, which has worked exactly how everyone would hope it would. Like, I think there can be no argument with the falling price of solar that, oh, I mean, it would be really hard to see this industry growing without the government subsidies that have been happening for decades. Yeah, I think it's a real success story on that front. I, I think it's kind of difficult the way it's played out in terms of the guaranteed feed-in rates and that kind of stuff. Like that's going to come back to yeah, <laughs> really necessitate these additional investments in the grid in terms of like being able to store, store electricity. And that's kind of where I came back to you originally with that comment on electric cars because it was probably three days before where I was like, why would the government need to invest in electric cars? Seriously, Australia is not that big a country. We're just going to be following the rest of the world anyway. Yeah. We'll, we'll just be forced to take electric cars in 15 years when California doesn't take petrol cars anyway. Possibly true. That is, I mean, I don't know. This is the attitude, which is hard to disagree with because you're, you are obviously correct. But it is also the attitude that leads to the crisis of global warming. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Why, it's why the free rider problem. Why bother doing anything about global warming? We're only 2% of the world's population and maybe 3% of the carbon emissions. So even if we cut to zero, it doesn't make any difference on carbon on things. So we may as well burn as much coal as possible, preferably brown coal. Yeah. I, <laughs> I understand the like the dissonance in my mind <laughs> where Brian disagrees with Brian, right? Because I've started this whole conversation being like, I'm into for renewables, but... Subsidizing electric cars seems stupid, blah, blah, blah. You've just read the scout mindset too many times and you're really good at arguing with yourself and playing both sides. <laughs> perhaps, 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 perhaps. But yeah, like I brought it to you to be like, oh, maybe we should be, maybe I was wrong three days ago. Maybe we should be creating some subsidies for electric cars because that's an easy way to get power storage into the grid. Yeah, has it, has, like people always talk about that. People talk, like I've heard this idea for at least five years, I want to say, that cars have big batteries in them and solar doesn't work at night because the sun's not shining. So therefore, what you should do is charge up your solar battery car and it can power the grid at night. And it sounds to the engineer in me like a very sensible idea, but I don't know whether anyone's ever done it, like ever. Yeah, I don't Even know that it'd ever feed back into the grid. Like this is my concern with it as well, right? Like if you just 
subsidise people getting electric cars, they're just going to be using that power to drive their car. They're not going to be feeding it into the grid at night. Not me. I don't drive my car, Brian. I want an electric car purely to show off. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. And it's good because it transitions away from the gasoline economy in terms of the, like, environmentalist in me. That's good. But at the same time, I don't think it's actually solving the grid's, you know, infrastructural problems other than, yeah, I guess it could be used as a booster for demand at certain times in the day when electricity prices are cheap because the batteries are just Yeah, I know there's a few places that when you install your battery, they'll pay you a premium to be able to drain off your battery when electricity is really, really expensive in the grid. So Yeah, and that's why I'm like more towards actually subsidizing batteries. I still just don't know how I feel about batteries in general. This is my problem. And this is kind of one other thing I wanted to bring to the podcast. This is like us barely talking about an article anymore, which is fun. This is a different way of playing the podcast for sure. Um, I just feel like storage seems like such a reasonable scale play for proper government investment, but maybe we do have to play it that subsidy way where rich people just chip in and get batteries instead of the government build pumped hydro or other mechanisms. Yeah, I wonder what the price differential between, you know, all these battery factories are making batteries much, much, much cheaper, all the gigafactories that Elon Musk is building and now Philips is following suit and a yeah. variety of other energy consumers. So I wonder at scale what the price difference for pumped hydro versus a battery would be. I genuinely don't know. And that was like my other thought in reading this Long Live the Sun article was batteries would have the same kind of advantages as solar panels, presumably, over like massive infrastructure builds because they're smaller. You can build them in smaller units. You can figure out optimizations. You can bring in innovation much easier than some new pump technology that I feel like... We're pretty good at pumps. I think we're done with pumps. This is my problem. This is my whole problem. (laughs) They're not getting much better. We're done. I worked in the water industry. It was one of my first jobs and (laughs) we're pretty good at working with water. Yep, we've been doing that a long time as humanity and we are really good at it. So, I don't know, I feel like... I mean, technically we've been working with batteries for a long time, right? Isn't there an ancient Greek battery from 5,000 years ago or something? Possibly. I don't know whether we've been iterating iterating terribly fast for the first (laughs) 4,980 years of that. So, I guess we're just like left in a state where the ideal outcome would be, yeah, you just build in the technology that we've optimized the most over millennia which is water and work with pumped hydro and figure out some stuff like that. Unfortunately, it requires a lot of steel and cement, which as Malcolm Turnbull said on his discussion with the Jolly Swagman, when you're dealing with steel and cement, it's just a lot of labor costs and you can't get around it, unfortunately. Yep, it's just big and heavy. Yep, or we're going the subsidized route where you effectively sneakily get rich people to pay extra taxes to invest in infrastructure and yep. get, get some uh, sweet signaling points. I get benefits out of it. Signaling points. I mean, a financial benefit in many cases, right? It's just a it's a delayed investment. A lot of people, rich people, are approaching this as an investment that will pay returns. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing whoever in Treasury needs to model this out, needs to figure out is, okay, well, we've kind of uh, locked in some solar feed-in rates over the years that are probably hurting the energy wholesalers or whatever right uh, now whenever that it goes feed-in rates, negative. All the grandfathered feed-in rates are only on your initial installation, which is usually one or two kilowatts. I don't actually think that's a huge deal. Yeah, just new installation and that kind of thing is... Yeah, the pay for new installation seems risky. There's, you know, the ACT Canberra where I live is all green power on the basis of paying for a bunch of solar plants in Adelaide and now the price that we're paying for their electricity is truly ludicrous by average grid standards, I think. I think there was like something I read or maybe it was in the conversation we had where there was a whole new development in Canberra where they mandated you have to have solar panels on your house or you will have to pay like a fine of $10,000. Yep. But then they've come in and been like, well, we're not actually going to pay you for that solar power because it's negative rates. So you don't get anything for it. And yeah. the people like tried to sue them and they're like, well, no, you, you didn't have to install the install the solar. It wasn't, it wasn't mandatory. You just had the choice between a $5,000 solar installation or a $10,000 fine. <laughs> Incentive structures are weird, man. Yeah, and lawyers. Yes, <laughs> and lawyers, yes. Um, Definitely laws think, are weird. Like something I hadn't really heard about. I don't know. I don't know. This, this whole article is very euphoric, very pro-science, et cetera. It makes me a little bit skeptical of some of the claims, uh, but we can yes. get into that in our coffee bit, of course. Uh, <laughs> But down the bottom, they were talking about generating gasoline from carbon in the air. Oh, I'm so skeptical of that. Yeah. Carbon negative technologies, they're a long way off being economically viable. There's a great write-up from, I got the link from Gwern, um, we'll put it in the show notes, of different carbon negative technologies. And it seems at best that they are like 100x worse dollar per 
carbon dioxide unit saved than just investing in like solar panel or something like that. So instead of like saving or offsetting existing power generation in the grid, creating right, carbon dioxide, right. capturing it from the existing atmosphere is 100x worse in terms of yeah, dollar per that, unit. That probably rests on a few assumptions, one of which would be a positive price for energy. Yeah, so when yeah, the grid yeah, yeah. price is negative, I do wonder whether that calculation changes. Like this, maybe this is our battery technology. Could be. Right? Rather than battery storage. And like the amount of solar we generate. So the cheapness of solar... Uh, and at the expense of batteries means if we were running fully off solar, we would want to size the total capacity like 5x what the shoulder capacity is so that when we've got the afternoon sun and it's dimming, we can still power the whole grid just off the sun rather than any of our batteries, which plausibly puts the daytime price like ludicrously negative. Or maybe it wouldn't be negative because I think solar panels are actually pretty easy to shut off. I think the price actually goes negative because of all the coal plants that take two days to fire up and shut down and really don't want to shut down. So they're willing to pay into the grid to not do that, basically. Yeah. But you know, potentially during the absolute sunniest times, we've got 5x capacity of what the grid's using or more. And maybe all that free electricity, then this carbon capture and storage and turning into gasoline becomes a more viable method of storage rather than just batteries the whole time. Yeah, there's already discussions on that front going on in terms of uh, not necessarily using it for carbon capture or, you know, getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but more turning it into other alternate fuels for other sources. So, you know, splitting water to get hydrogen for hydrogen yeah, fuel or creating ammonia because there's potentially use for uh, different uh, different ways of distilling ammonia to substitute for uh, jet fuel effectively. Like that's a technology that oh, people really? are working on. So there's different schemes going on kind of in that way, but it's not taking carbon out of the atmosphere just yet like that feels like it's not 30 years time technology like well well people are working on those technologies but it feels like it is more efficient currently to create alternate fuel sources than to just strip carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere basically right Sure. Yeah. Okay. That's and I'm not going to like could... dismiss that whole field because there's cool stuff going on. But I mean, maybe that's where solar was 30 years ago. Just need yeah. to do a government investment to get kickstarted. I would also say, like, I know they are starting to make electric aircraft, which are pretty cool. But at the moment, I don't know whether there's been any drastic breakthrough. But I think batteries are going the same path as solar, and they're not actually getting much better. They're just getting way cheaper. Yeah. Is why they're good. And sort of the 60 liters of fuel that you put in your car weighs about. 50 kilos to get the equivalent range and energy density of Tesla needs like 300 kilos worth of batteries, yeah. Uh, which is sort of fine in a car. It makes them handle a bit funny and that makes them a bit leaden. But in an airplane, every kilo really, really counts, right? Yeah. Hydrocarbons are very, <laughs> very, very energy efficient, dense. Very dense, very stable up until you hit them with a spark. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to come up with a solution for that. And that's why they've been looking into hydrogen and ammonia sort of substitutes for that kind of system. Right. That's been my read on the technology on that front. I mean, petrol's just a hydrocarbon, right? So once you've yeah, got exactly. the hydrogen, all you need to do is attach it to a carbon backbone and pop your uncle. Yep. I don't know how hard that is. I don't know. Burn it? I mean, probably burning it isn't helping. <laughs> oh, that was the other thing. The good thing about this article, in my mind, actually, the Long Live the Sun article, to get back to that discussion, it was a thing I heard Malcolm Turnbull mention five years ago, just dismissing nuclear power in Australia. Just to be like, it's something that everyone has always brought up for the last 20 years, every couple of years, and it's just not a good idea. Right. And I just never believed it. But like reading the trajectory, solar panels and that kind of stuff makes me more inclined to believe it. Sure. I, I think, think there's like interesting stuff going on currently in Korea around small reactors and stuff like that. But I just don't think it's a thing for Australia, to be honest. I really think it's just not politically a thing for just about the whole world. I think yeah. that... I think there's not really an engineering reason why we couldn't have done the same for nuclear as we've done for solar. You would have read the, the Progress Studies article on nuclear safety, strangling yes. the nuclear industry. Roots of Progress. Fantastic of progress. article. We'll put that in the links too. We'll absolutely put that in the show notes. And so things like the nuclear industry, and this talks mostly to the US industry, so that is what we will talk about. Their, their standard of safety is as safe as possible. So basically that means as soon as nuclear power could fall to being cheaper than coal or any other fossil fuel that is causing climate change, it immediately just becomes safer because it is still profitable to make it even, even safer. And they put in the example of their radioactivity detectors are so sensitive that if you walk in in the rain, you really have to brush your feet off because the rainwater has enough something in it that it triggers their radioactive sensors. And it's like, 
if there's that level of radioactivity in rainwater, probably we don't need to make our nuclear plants safer than that at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, that was a fascinating write-up. It was interesting to see that Korea, I think it was, was still able to like have a reasonable trajectory on their okay. like learning curve in building nuclear power. But basically everywhere else in the world has completely given up on it. There's a few interesting projects going on in India at the minute. So they were exploring thorium uh, power plants, which has always been a big like catch cry of the <laughs> environmental nuclear enthusiast, I suppose. Yep. As which, which, is a growing, which is a things. growing tribe, I guess. And it sounds paradoxical, but it's, uh, there's a lot of people that think a nuclear grid is a green grid. Yes. Yeah. You're not emitting any carbon. It is neutral for carbon change rather than maybe some of the mining that gets done. But you don't need a lot of uranium for a nuclear plant either. Yeah. But all anyone ever has to say in response to any discussion on nuclear is where are you going to store the waste? Oh, well. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. There's arguments that the waste generated by coal plants is much, much worse, much more poisonous for the environment. It's just more diffuse rather than concentrated. Yeah. And like, like it's, a, it's really, it's an interesting cycle. Like we deliberately got into uranium power plants because a byproduct was plutonium and enriched uranium, which is explicitly called out in memos from the Joint Chief of Staff in charge of the Navy at the time as the reason why they would have a domestic uranium nuclear industry rather than thorium or some other radioactive element. And then I wonder how much of the pressure put on nuclear power plants for extreme safety is actually just a, a reaction to the fact that it can make weapons. And so anytime a smaller country that doesn't have a nuclear weapons program tries to put it in, all the, the safety people, it's like a, just a really good excuse for any nuclear power to put a lot of pressure on their plants to make to stop them from making it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's why I'm like interested to see how these pilot plants in India go, where whether it's thorium, I think they've got some other alternate designs for still using uranium, but it wouldn't have the plutonium generation i think they're using different isotopes or something like that right and there are some that are unable to melt down i remember even when i was at uni 10 years ago they were talking about pebble bed reactors that just they're inherently safe essentially they cannot go critical like chernobyl yeah yeah there's like discussions around molten salt reactors and blah 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 all that kind of stuff but it's just a matter of no there's all these designs but no one's actually able to build them and iterate them and actually go through a learning curve because there's all these blockers in the way yeah because of all the regulation around them because no one likes nuclear it's just got such a bad name that it seems impossible like there's political reasons in place and no one has any incentive to remove those political instruments because no one's really that desperate for nuclear power. And so solar will win. And I'm like, I don't mind that. I actually think solar is probably a superior result in the end, but it does feel like we could have had this, you know, free, too cheap to meet a power that is completely carbon neutral 20 years ago if we hadn't have shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah, I think probably the way that the future is going is there's still going to be some environmental costs to pay on top of the damage that is already coming, right? So if we have to install pumped hydro you know what that's some dams and dams actually cause environmental devastation but you know, yeah they actually cause a surprising amount of carbon like yeah hydropower sounds green because it's hydropower but it, it emits almost as much carbon dioxide as some of the dirtier power plants i think just because of all the trees that rot when you flood a when you flood a valley yeah plus all the concrete that goes into actually building a dam yeah yeah so that's a concern if you've got existing dams and you can do pumped hydro off them sure cool but you know just just noting that there's going to be costs building batteries still has costs to the environment cost to anything you yeah, gotta have I mean, places so to put the batteries cars. there's there's just costs everywhere but it was nice reading an outlook that says there is a way forward yeah a really great way forward that both improves our quality of life and helps to reduce out the impact of climate change yeah this is a very exciting article i really want to believe every single word that she says i don't i don't <laughs> i don't, I don't either <laughs> i know enough to not but it's it's nice to read that's for sure Here's a question for you. Once energy is too cheap to meet up, what are you going to do? What, how is your life going to change? Uh, I've just put my brain into the blockchain. <laughs> right. Sorry. I forgot the obvious answer. I had different <laughs> ones, but yours is way better. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the middle, the between articles bit of the show, although I don't even know what our second article is, so maybe it's the end of the show bit of the show, uh, <laughs> where we like to thank our patrons. We like to thank our listeners. We like to thank our patrons. We like to be just grateful for how successful this has been so far. This is episode 20, which is pretty cool. Like, you know, it's always nice to celebrate the little milestones where you click over the 10. I'm looking forward to episode 50 and episode 100 already. Thanks for sticking with us, those who have stuck with us for every episode. Thanks for those for starting with us for the very first time on episode 20. Less thanks to those who just go back to our kind of crap earlier episodes and like oh i better listen to these guys from the start through because I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea i think you should just like start in episode 20 and hope <laughs> that we get better from here because some of the earlier episodes are a little rough 
Start around like episode 12, I reckon, is a good starting point. Yeah. yeah we yeah. do refer to stuff in the early days and we continue to these days, but you know, like, you'll catch up. You're It'll smart people. Through. You'll get it. Yep, absolutely. And so, a suggestion of a patron, and we are affix.live, is that we should have a live show. So, that is something that we are going to host on the 13th of June at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. So, that's 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Sunday the 13th of June. We will set up a live stream. Uh, all patrons will get access. Probably everyone will get access unless it gets really full and every single patron wants to join. And you can heckle us. You can ask us questions directly. Uh, we might have a couple of themes that we want to talk about on the topic, but we're going to advertise that pretty heavily for the next few episodes to hopefully get a few people interested in, in a live show. Awesome. So I think that'll be fun to have another a feedback show that is live. And I hope you're interested in participating. We will get details out in the next show. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. Always appreciate all your support and always appreciate whatever feedback we get, whether it's to affixpodcast at gmail.com or podcastaffix at gmail.com. You can always reach out to us. You can find us on Discord. You can find us on Reddit. Where about? You'll find us. Where are you? you know us. <laughs> you know us. Most of you know us personally. Oh, maybe not most of you anymore. Actually, who would be surprised if it's still most of the people who listen to us personally? I think we've got enough listeners. that A substantial minority of you know us personally. That's that's almost certainly still true. <laughs> Fabulous. Ooh. Cool. So for our second topic, this is going to be a bit of a shorter one. We kind of missed our window on this one. So it's Founding versus Inheriting by Balajai Srinivasan. Now, you might have heard of Balajai a bit in uh, recent months. So he was getting around on the various news feeds and Reddit and everything talking about the future of cryptocurrency and being a big spruiker for that and kind of railing against Wall Street is big against Wall Street. Big against journalists too. Man, does that guy hate journalists. Oh yeah. Maybe I've also been extra exposed to him because of the whole Scott Alexander thing. But anyway, he had a fantastic podcast a month ago or maybe a couple of months ago now with Tim Ferriss discussing... <laughs> Literally lot. everything. It was four hours long. It was a lot. It was a very enjoyable podcast. It was brain candy for me. It was like what it used to be like for me watching episodes of The Simpsons or Family Guy or something like that with just all these different pop culture references that you get in The Simpsons and Family Guy. <laughs> Balajai was just out there with all the historical references that just like, oh, yeah, the Treaty of Westphalia and the Maginot, uh, Maginot Line. Line. And- all these other things that Tim Ferriss kept being like, I got no idea what you're talking about. Which really about. surprises me because Tim Ferriss is not a stupid man and reads quite widely, I thought. So. Yeah. Well, he's read Seneca and I have not read Seneca. So, you know, you got that on me, Tim Ferriss. Yep. So, the other thing that Balajai is currently doing, he started a website, 1729.com. He is putting up articles on there. And as part of this, he's actually got prizes for each article he puts up. And this particular one had a prize of 100 US dollars in Bitcoin for people who put up reviews of it and they want it. And in just three years' time, you'll be a millionaire if you win that. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but anyway, that's all resolved. So we missed our opportunity to properly review this and win $100. I mean, that could have paid for our server fees for, I don't know, Half a few months. <laughs> but you know what? Let's talk about it anyway, because Balajai is just an interesting guy and I thought that would be a nice quick topic for us. Yes, you'll be surprised to hear me say the words, someone who with whom I disagree with, but really makes me think. I don't know whether I actually disagree with anyone. I think I just all watch this through me and I believe every word that everyone's ever told me. <laughs> My main problem with Balajai is he just, like, I was a person who was into Occupy Wall Street in the very, very early days, but he just keeps making this assertion about the bailouts and he just says it in a way that seems like the government just gave money with no expected payback to the banks, but the bailouts yeah. were loans. Yeah. And I feel like the fact that bailouts are loans is just a thing that is commonly missed in the discourse. Have they been paid back? Have they all yes, been paid back? Yes, they were, they were yeah. paid back with a profit. So the, the US government yeah. actually made a profit out of making the bailout loans to the big institutions. Yeah. And, you know, they preserved a lot of intellectual capital and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying like best earns, et cetera, back in the financial crisis didn't mess up a bunch, but, you know. Do you think they messed up criminally? Because no one got held criminally to account. No, there was just that one guy in, um, what was it, the Michael Lewis book? Yeah, famously, the one guy who got held criminally account was like a whistleblower or something. Yep. Ridiculous. Yes, I thought that was pretty dumb. I, f- I feel like, yeah, criminal negligence is a field that I don't know enough about, but it feels like it applied in the <laughs> back in I those mean, days. if we didn't have laws, would you be there with your pitchfork going back to last episode, enacting mob justice yourself? <laughs> well, I'm in Australia, so no. It's a long way to drive. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Whatever. Let's get into the article. So this yeah. actual article, Founding versus Inheriting. 
essentially is kind of looking at the different dynamics between East Coast United States, West Coast United States. East Coast being New York, Washington, D.C., those kind of institutions. Where America started, basically. Yep. Because it's the closest to England. And West Coast, oh, I, I guess it's the whole West Coast, right? So it's Seattle would be included, yep. as well as California. So San Francisco. California being the big Hollywood, one. yeah. I just feel like Seattle being included kind of is important because of Amazon, right? Yep, and Microsoft. And Microsoft, of course, yes. Silly me. They're a big company. They fly <laughs> under the radar these days. <laughs> Scarily under the radar, actually. No one's really yeah. angry at them for their social media, but they're a very big tech company. That's a good point. So essentially, his overview here is saying it's one thing to build something from the ground up and it takes a certain talent. It is a completely different thing to just be inheriting something and take over it. And the talents involved might be something as you know parochial as inheritance. It might be something as weird as running for electoral office. It might be yep. something like going through a job interview process. But none of those skills actually have the same like mental capacity or mental power as actually going through and founding something and kind of pulling from all these different areas and being an entrepreneur and, you know, that whole West Coast culture of just startup founding, making a god out of the entrepreneur, it feels yes, like. they do like that. And, you know, the metas that goes along with starting something, things that you can't hand down because you don't really understand why you do things just in the process of making so many mistakes, you start to learn what mistakes are going to feel like and don't make them perhaps. Yes, yes. And... Good Lord, yeah. Like, I don't think he actually talks to it in the process, but there is just a lot of, like, administrative burden that builds up in institutions that gets perpetuated for reasons that everyone forgets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's everyone's true. afraid to stop doing it because they don't know why they're doing it, so they don't know if they yeah. can stop doing it. I don't mind a healthy respect for uh, Chesterton's fence. I think that's good. Yeah, well, yes. Chesterton's... Sorry, this is just another, like, little tangent to bring in here. As a farm boy... Like Chesterton's mm. fence is just the rule of gates. It's the rule of gates. If you are going onto a property in a rural area, you leave the gate the way you found it. If the gate is open, you leave the gate open. If the gate was closed, you close the gate behind you. If the gate is open and it says, please close the gate, you leave the gate open because Do you, you really? don't know what is happening with the property. Like there might be cows going through, there might be moving things around. You leave the gate exactly as you found it. And that's right. the rule of that gates is- in the rural world. <laughs> I feel like I need to explain Chesterton's fence after that beautiful, eloquent defense of the rule of gates. And Chesterton's fence is this idea that, you know, if you come across a road in the middle of nowhere and you see a gate in it, you should not remove that gate. You, you could say, I don't see any reason for there to be a gate here. I'm just going to remove that gate. And Chesterton's fence argument is like, if you don't understand why the gate is there, then I'm definitely not going to let you remove it. Once you can explain why it was put up in the first place, then maybe I will let you remove it. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's a metaphor for cultural institutions or, you know. Why we should respect traditions. Yeah. It's always fun to bring my proletarian farm boy self to the podcast sometimes, you know. That's what the people come for. (laughs) Anyway, the argument that Balajai is getting to in this article is with all these inherited institutions that are built up on the East Coast, they all showed their true colors in the fact that they are inherited and no one actually knows how to create anything from scratch or run things dynamically when a big dramatic event like COVID hit because everything fell over, you know, whatever, the fire department fell over, something else fell over, something, and then blah, blah, blah. CDC, WHO. The US military took 14 months to create a mask. Yep, and, and it's high elders as a phenomenal success. Yeah, which is just like, yeah. But Amazon still ran. So it's kind of this general view that, oh, yeah, the heirs failed, the founders succeeded. The West Coast and all their entrepreneurial spirit was able to better cope with everything. And I'm kind of really skeptical on this. I feel like the big arguments against it are, well, the post office still worked and that's a big government institution. Like that's just one little point. But the main point I would say is like, it's not necessarily the fact that it was a founder mindset that allowed these companies to be more dynamic. They're just dealing with less baggage and they have less checks on them than what we have built up against government power over the many, many centuries of it running. And perhaps that's for good reason. Like, I don't know, if you had that that same amount of power that was unchecked that all these government institutions have, maybe they would be more dynamic and maybe that would actually be a bad thing. Yeah, or maybe it would be a good thing during COVID, but a terrible thing during whenever the opposite political party to the one I like is in power. Yeah, it could be a bit of mood affiliation stuff. I don't know. But uh, I don't know. What do you think, Chris? What do you think on the general, like, louding of the entrepreneur? Uh I still like it. I, I mean, I have this thing that I say every now and then that just like jobs are weird. 
the fact that we have jobs at all is just a weird state of being. Like go back as little as 200 years and everyone's an entrepreneur because everyone's running their you know, five acre farm and they have to manage their own farm and produce their own goods that they sell at a market in order to survive. And that's what you do. And so you have to plant the correct crop that doesn't die or whatever. And that has a lot of problems. Like, And the benefits of specialization and jobs are extreme, but jobs are weird. And so I think that we have lost a lot in not having everyone as an entrepreneur. And I, I just... I don't know. I do. I get rubbed the wrong way about like the most important thing in the economy is jobs and everyone just needs a good job and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, why can't they figure it out for themselves and actually do something useful without being told this is exactly how you do something useful? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm like pretty on board with the lauding of the entrepreneur because I think they actually do something useful without being told. And I think that that is a rarer and rarer trait in modern society. And I'm, I want to fully disclose, I don't do it. I just work a job because <laughs> I like being told what to do to generate economic value because then I can take that economic value and buy toys with it. Yeah. I mean... I've written many a business plan in my day. One of them was for a cryptocurrency, funnily enough. But instead, I decided to take the safe route and continue getting promoted in my multinational business. For not that much money. I'd probably have a couple of extra zeros on my net worth, perhaps if I lived in the valley and had that startup mindset. But, you know, whatever. We push on. We push on. So I'm like, I'm actually pretty on board with the, the loading of the entrepreneur. I think that that is still good. I'm, 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 I'm keen. I'm on board. I like the founder. All right. And do you think that that is the difference. Is that why Silicon Valley seemingly succeeded? Because again, yeah, the internet didn't really have many outages. Zoom made all our lives much easier. Amazon packages kept being delivered while the government made a mess and closed things down and opened things up and closed things down and opened things up seemingly every time they flipped a coin and it landed the opposite way. So do you think that was like down to the ability of the founders to, you know, still be around, but also have all that kind of in the moment firefighting, troubleshooting, build a business from scratch ability? Or was it kind of they just were less... Encumbered. Less encumbered. I definitely think less encumbered. I also think that it's a pretty unfair double standard. It's like, oh man, all we expected to the government to do was keep literally everyone safe, put lockdowns at the exact right time, understand when travel bans were effective versus not, develop vaccines, incentivize the creation of testing and, you know, generally make society normal. And they didn't even do that. And look, Amazon delivered a bunch of packages, right? Right? Amazon. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I think you've articulated that better than I could possibly have hoped to. <laughs> um, so, much as I'm like I'm on board with the loading of the entrepreneur, I, do, I mean, I do think I do think the government has their hands tied. I think there's all sorts of processes in governments because something went wrong one time. Uh, sins of commission are much much worse than sins of omission. So, all the processes we're looking are like we must make sure that this thing never happens again. And like once you've got twenty things that happened and must never happen again, you've got a lot of like tip boxes to tick before you can do anything. Yeah, 100%. I'm also not just giving governments a pass on this. I mean, we talked about it a lot in that episode one that people should not go back and listen to uh, <laughs> on Zvi Mashowitz, that there's like a lot of weird face-saving stuff that goes into people inheriting institutions and running for office and that kind of thing, right? And maybe there is an extra bit of dynamism that was the booster. But I do feel like, yeah... We've created a lot of chains over the years. Yeah, I wonder, like, the if you want to get cynical, the core competency of a politician is winning votes, whereas the core competency of an entrepreneur sometimes is pleasing customers, which I do think is better, personally, but also is pleasing VCs, which is probably not better. Pleasing VCs, that's an interesting point. Not making money <laughs> on the West um, Coast, anyway. <laughs> well, no, not making money. That's not how you do it. That's not how my businesses do it, I, I promise you. <laughs> Losing money as fast as we can. We can't lose it fast enough. <laughs> Uh, Seriously, if you want to come work for me, you know, send us a CV. (laughs) (laughs) Fun. All right. Yeah. Well, that was a quick punchy topic. I think it was just uh, worth covering off. That's for sure. Anyway, everyone definitely go check out if you have, you know, a spare three to four hours, that Tim Ferriss podcast with Balajan. It is worth a listen, even at that length. Yep. It's continually interesting the whole way through. You think Chris and I talk fast and we're smart? Like Balajai takes it to a next level. Very... Very interesting guy. Write some interesting stuff. Super, super West Coast. Super West Coast. Well, not anymore because the crypto, I hear more and more that crypto is drifting away from the West Coast, that Silicon Valley is not the hub of crypto. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, and I think Balajai even alluded to it in this article that um, there's a lot of doubters in Silicon Valley on crypto that they don't like it and they're worried about it. And so crypto is moving to other hubs or even just fully distributed, right? Coinverse was famously the first S3 without a head office. <laughs> One of the addresses they put down was, was Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin wallet address, which is pretty cute. That's Yeah, that's phenomenal. I think Balajai is a bit skeptical on the whole woke culture thing and like censorship that way as well. Like he's a bit old school. So that might yeah. be pushing him against uh, West Coast as well. But I feel like in 10 years time, 
this is all just going to feel so out of date. <laughs> I mean, maybe one way or another. Either crypto will be beanie babies and everyone will be like, ha, remember the 2020s when everyone was like, ha, oh, crypto, it's going to change the world and blah, blah, blah. And oh, my Bitcoin's going to be worth $100 million and now it's worth like five cents. Or crypto will actually run the world and we're like, ha, oh, remember when you used to be able to buy a Bitcoin with like one person's, you know, lifetime salary? Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes somewhere. We probably already have it in the show notes to have a general discussion on crypto, that's for sure. Oof, risky. Do you really miss in or am I? I haven't been practicing my singing very much this week. I've been busy. Oh, all right. Well, I'll lead us in because I'm always up for it. One, two, three. It's coffee bet time. It's coffee bet time. Right. Well, we're having a bet on solar power, obviously. Uh, I just don't know what it is yet. I want to put like percentages of the grid, but I just don't know where it's at right now. Cool. All right. I thought you were going to force me into a bet on nuclear and like the small medium reactors or whatever. Oh, I feel like I know less about that. Good. Because... <laughs> No, actually, I don't have any insights. Funnily enough, I did a uh, machine learning analysis of Australia and statistics data on solar panel distribution. So I should know more than I do. But that analysis was four years ago now. So <laughs> I'm a bit behind Out the times. Out of date. Okay. So renewables in 2019, I would say account for... Can you send me the link? No. <laughs> Denied. Do you think I want to win this coffee bed or lose this coffee bed? <laughs> Yeah, just have to take all the information I give you as gospel and bet, assuming that I would never lie to you. All right. We have that kind of relationship. I can trust you. Unless it's, we're playing a board game. Unless we're playing a board game. I think you can trust the things that I say, just not the reasons I may be saying them. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Go ahead with your bet proposition. So I would say that the renewables are currently accounting, or in 2019, accounted for roughly 20% of Australia's electricity generation. Yep. And we've just read an article that is euphorically ecstatically about how solar panels are free and they're going to completely revolutionize everything in the next five seconds and we're going to be in a techno utopia where energy is too cheap to meter and i'm going to leave my air conditioning on and heating on all night and my house is going to be an exact perfect like 17 degrees all night and i'm going to love it because i'm never going to have to change blankets from year to year <laughs> so in i don't know this, this feels like it's going to be a long scale bet because it's hard to make changes this fast with this level of capital investment so it's like a five-year bet in 2025 what's australia's renewable percentage the trend's pretty good towards renewables sorry i'm getting my own finger ruler out onto my screen right now you got to do like... it right you agree with the 20 percent is 2019 well it explicitly says it at the text at the top it says oh, renewables it? contributed 21 percent of total electricity generation in 2019 all right which is 5% hydro, 7% seven percent wind, more wind than... Oh, no, same amount of wind and solar. So, 7% wind, 7% solar. Huh, that surprised me too. So, it seems like over the last 10-ish years, it's growing roughly 1% of the fuel mix per year. Yep, it's a 10% increase. So, it's gone from 19% in 2018 to 21% in 2019, which is, yeah, a 10% increase year on year. Ah, oh, so see, I'm I'm looking at the linear trend, whereas you're looking at the you got to look at the growth trend. Man. Yeah. We learned nothing about exponential <laughs> growth in the last year. I'm just so skeptical on exponential growth in business models. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm all about so. the S curves, man. This is why you are not good at pitching VCs. Yeah, probably actually a good point. Just give me give me an extra ten years, and I will make more GDP than the world. Um, okay. So when are we making this bet for? 2027. We don't have anything resolving in 2027. Let's just right, go 2027. So 2027, but so six years from now. Sure. Okay. 2019 was 21%. 2027, we probably won't be able to resolve until 2028, but that's fine. What's that? Eight years on. If I take my linear trend, then we'd be at 29%. Would we? Yeah, if, that sounds about right. Yeah. No, it doesn't. If you're just adding one oh, percentage getting, point getting, per year. We're getting two percentage points per year. Didn't it go from 19 to 21? Was it 19? Yeah, 19 oh. in 2018, 21 in 2019. I was eyeballing from the chart at It says it up the top. I can't believe yeah, you didn't read up the top. It says it just in words, Brian. It's right there. You don't need your finger chart. You and you're reading the end of sentences, man. Come on. I only read the start of sentences. I cannot believe we both just did the identical thing to each other. That's pretty classic. All right, cool. Yep. So, look, I'm going to say 30%. 30%. I'll take the high side in an instant like that. Yeah, I think you've got the advantage there. If uh, if we're going off the, the vibe of the article we were talking about, it definitely feels like it'd be more positive. Like, uh, I think the only thing that could hamstring that would be battery prices if batteries don't fall in the way that we're hoping that they will. 
Yeah. That like we get to the point of solar where it floods the entire grid at midday and we can't really build anymore because we have to start turning it off. It's a really interesting chart, this one, like just seeing the massive growth in natural gas between 2008 and 2013. Yeah, sure. That's when my friend started working in natural gas. That massively ate into brown coal and then renewables kind of ate into natural gas. Yeah, that is interesting. Black coal, we just can't get rid of it. Black coal's been... It's less than half of the grid now, but still more than a half of our grid is coal in general. (sighs) I mean, I feel like I could firm up my predictions by like looking at planned retirement dates for coal-generated power plants. Sure, yeah. Because my understanding, I don't know whether this is still true, but it used to be that the the coal that goes into coal plants was almost treated as free. It's so cheap to shovel coal into these things that it basically is a free input cost. So the the whole price is the capital, which means you're just depreciating it over X lifespan. So you're probably just going to keep doing it even if solar panels come in. Don't know know whether that's still true and whether it's true enough if there's enough pressure on coal plus solar panels literally don't need any coal shoveled into them. Mm. That's got to be cheaper. Yeah, yeah, of course. You'd think uh, no material costs when it literally is pure depreciation. Anyway, okay. Now I'm going to stick to 30%. Whatever. 30%? All right. I'll take the high side of 30%. More than 30% of Australia's energy grid will be renewable by 2027. And we will still be podcasting every week and I won't be tired at all. I will be the prophet of doom for renewables as much as I want to believe. <sighs> well, it's nice of you to play devil's advocate for once in your life. <laughs> uh, once again, I'm just uh, taking the conservative side. Cool. All right. Boom. Boom. Oh, actually, no, 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 no. We'll put this up on Melange. Everyone, if you want to make oh, simple, yeah. silly bets with your friends, use the Melange app. We are the pioneers of it, apparently. Yeah, Brian got an email from the creator saying, you're the only person who uses this app. <laughs> who are you even betting against? He's like, I bet against Chris. <laughs> He's nice too. Uh, so that's cool. We can we can grow with each other. I think the yep. Melange app's pretty good. It's a fun place to put little fun bets up. It's a permanent record of them so that you can reflect back to them later. And I assume it will remind you when they're done. Do your own coffee bets, folks. They're fun. Cool. The news from Diablo this week is brought to you by Chris, not by Brian. Or it's actually not even brought to you by Chris. It's brought to you by one of our patrons. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked with Brian about the Straussian reading of Diablo 2. And he he just says it's silly fun. But our listener begs to differ and has multiple (laughs) Straussian readings on the meaning of Diablo 2 speedrunning and the community in general. Uh, And he's just so smart. I really feel like he should be doing this podcast rather than either of us. I think he could just talk to both sides of a conversation and probably carry it better than either of us do. God, we have some smart listeners. I love it. We definitely have some smart listeners. And they send send us amazing commentary sometimes. So I'm not going to read all of them out, but I'm going to read my two favorites. So... The Diablo 2 community is a critique of how mainstream culture has absorbed nerd culture. Diablo 2 is so old that it came out during many people's formative high school years. Computer gaming was very nerdy. Xbox hadn't come out. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was still eight years away. But since then, comic books, gaming, and Diablo sibling StarCraft have become major cultural touch points. To me, these speedrunnings are signaling an affiliation with the original nerd culture back in the early 2000s. They're nerds before nerds became cool. And they like, they're a little bit pissed off that everyone's you know, harsh in their vibe. Whoa. They're hipster nerds. You're a hipster nerd, Brian. (laughs) I was a nerd back when it was depressing. Back literally before it was cool. (laughs) Yes. When it was actively uncool. Yeah. So do you feel like that's what you're signaling when you're playing Diablo 2 rather than playing a modern game or rather than, you know, going to a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie? That could be part of it. I think the uh, the retro category on Twitch has a lot behind it. And I think that could be a lot of the the culture there. And are they ultra nerds, yeah, there's definitely a lot of weirdos. Right, there <laughs> I you think go. is the safe way to put it. Like you. <laughs> Weirder than me. And so the next one, which is almost equally as good, is Diablo speedrunning community is a critique of the original Diablo 2. You wouldn't know it from the Affix podcast, but the Diablo 2 came with a single-player campaign absolutely loaded with lore, stories, characters, and the game takes itself incredibly seriously. And I can vouch for this. The game is very serious. And when I was 13 years old and playing it, it blew my mind. I'm like, this story is the best story ever told. This is better than the Iliad. This is amazing. Uh, the designers largely replicated the gothic atmosphere of Diablo 1, but there was some humour. There was a famous secret to cow level, but it crept only in the edges. The speedrunning community rejects all of that lore by playing Diablo 2 in such a way that the lore is completely inconsequential. You skip everything, you don't talk to anyone. When they try to talk to you, clicks faster, 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 so that you can get to the end even and get a, yet another world record. I love it. I mean, that is 100%. Like, that was a big discussion when I was first getting into Diablo speedrunning. People would be like, do you even know anything about the lore? They're like... What? How do I even pronounce this character's name? Really? So there's actual speedrunners that weren't Diablo tragics in their youth and know every character's name all the way through. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that that's really a speedrunning thing, though. Like, this would be my critique of that critique. So many people who play Diablo 
back in the day never actually played the campaign. They just got on Battle.net. Oh, and really? And they just got rushed. And, oh, <laughs> just got, rush, right. please, rush, please. Yeah, I do remember a bit of rush, please. How does Act 3 even work? You just rush to Mephisto, I guess. Do you need to even do anything in Act 3? There needs to be one person once upon a time who went through the quest and like morphed a thing and got a flail and smashed something. But right. as long as you've got that person to rush you, you're set. Yeah, okay. So anyway, I thought those comments were incredibly insightful. And honestly, like not just hugely insightful into Diablo 2, but I feel like I have a better understanding of the term Straussian reading of something. Like I'm really... Oh, 100%. Like genius. You are a genius. Thank you so much for <laughs> listening. Thank you so much for being a patron. I honestly feel like we should start... You should set up a patron and we can pay you back. That is such an excellent comment. I love it. <laughs> yep. No, thank you. That was genuinely great. I want to see the rest of these now. I'll send it to you. Cool. All right. I better chuck in some genuine Diablo news, but I'll just throw it out there. Whatever. Indrek won another race. It was the Hell P8 Sorceress. Woo. No, I mean, that's an important one. Sorceress is always an important race because they're usually the fastest. They are. They are. He missed the world record by two minutes. So it was actually really, really tense at the last, at the very end of the game. I was watching it live. I put my son down to bed and thought, oh yeah, I'll catch the end of this. And then it was like five minutes left in the run. I'm like, oh, so Sorceress, faster than you think. Well done, Indrek. Again. The Estonian Speedman. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks for hanging out with us again for another week, folks. Do send through your feedback. We love hearing from you. Straussian geniuses. You don't have to be one, but if you are, speak up. I mean, any kind of genius is willing to write in and any kind of normal listener as well. Totally. Do continue to recommend us to your friends. We can be found on pretty much any listening platform. You don't just have to go to the website and listen. You can go to Spotify. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Podcast Podcast Addict. Addict. What's the one you listen to on? I listen to Pocket Casts. Pocket Casts, there you go. Uh, or Overcast is my favorite for iOS. So All you've got to do is search Affix, A-F-F-I-X, and you can subscribe to us directly rather than having to click on the website or my Facebook page every week. Yep, so once again, thanks for all the support, folks, and uh, look forward to speaking to you next week. Woo! Goodbye. Computers are weird. No one understands them. Definitely not the people who make them. I promise you that. Yeah, it's just all magic in there. That's why you can't let it out. That's why you do not want to let the smoke out. That is for damned sure.